Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm David Lipton, also a neuroscience graduate student. Today, our guest is Virginia Lee, professor of pathology and laboratory medicine and co-director of the Center for Neurodegenerative Disease Research at UPenn School of Medicine. We'll be speaking with her about identifying some of the most famous proteins in neurodegenerative disease, and indeed all of neuroscience, figuring out what the hell to do with your life, and collaborating with a life partner. All this and more, coming up. We're here with Virginia Lee, Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine and Co-Director of the Center for Neurodegenerative Disease Research at UPenn School of Medicine. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Lee. You're very welcome. First, we'd just like to ask a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you decided you wanted to become a scientist. It's not a conventional path, I can tell you that. So I think you would ask me, even when I was in my early 20s, that I would be doing what I do now, and I would not believe you. Actually, I was born in China. My family fled the, the communist China and then went to Hong Kong. And so I grew up in Hong Kong until I was about, I guess, 16 when I finished high school. My family, they're really very traditional Chinese, and obviously, like many Chinese, they encourage education. There are no scientists in my family. And in fact, when I was in high school, my mother, who was a very traditional Chinese woman, and uh, wanted me to have some sort of education, but eventually she wanted me to marry a wealthy Chinaman. And so what would be the best thing for a little girl and uh, oh, for you know, a teenager? So my mother thought that it would be a great idea for me to study music. And so then she sent me off to uh, the Royal Academy of Music in London. And so my first sort of, um, I guess, post-high school was studying music at the Royal Academy of Music. So before that, when I was in high school, I was pretty good in science. So I thought, you know, so I, I didn't know, and I, I really wanted to get out, of, get out of Hong Kong, because Hong Kong is a very small place, and I wanted to see the world. I said to myself, well, this is not so bad. You know, I get to go to Europe, and I, you know, get to do something so then I started doing music. And then three or four months later, I said to myself, you know, I'm not sure I can practice, you know, six to eight hours a day, five, five days a week. That's a lot. It's an intense training, it's right? It's very intense training. And I said to myself, you know, and my major was music, that was piano. So I said, well, you know, there are only about 10 concert pianos in the world. I'm not going to be one of those 10 people. So you better think about something else that you might actually do to make a living. And so I said to myself, well, you know, I was pretty good in, in science and I was pretty good in chemistry. So maybe I can go to college and, um, and study chemistry. And so that's actually how I ended up going to undergraduate at the University of London and Western College at the University of London. My mother was really, was not happy that I wasn't going to do music. And so, but, you know, gradually she said, okay, you can go to college, 
and I will support you. And um, so that's actually how I started doing science. And, you know, the English system and at that time and uh, was very different than it is now. And um, so if you do chemistry, you really actually only study chemistry, physics, and math. So a, a year or two into my, my uh, undergraduate, I said, this is pretty dry. You know, I need something else that would actually be more stimulating. And so I finished my chemistry. I decided, well, okay, maybe I can do a master's degree in biochemistry. So that's exactly what I did. So I went from uh, one branch of one college at the University of London, another one. So I, I went to Imperial College for my master's degree. And then at that point, I said, okay, now I learned something about biochemistry. But I was living in London, and my mother, by that point, was living in California. So I decided, well, maybe I should really go and live, you know, in California. Then I said to myself, well, you know, at the same time, with a master's degree, you know, can I really make a living, a decent living to support myself? So I said, well, maybe I should think of, you know, doing a PhD. I mean, it's sort of, a lot of these is by default. I really decide I'm going to, you know, there are people, there are some of my students, and, you know, 10, 15 years of age, and sometimes, you know, the kids of friends of mine, they know they want to be a scientist, or they want to be a doctor, or they want to be an engineer, you know, when they're very young. But I really, you know, I just sort of... You followed your interests <laughs> from day to day. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy because I think a lot of us who are in scientists nowadays, we think of this, oh, this is going to be so hard to make it. And ironically for you, it was like, oh, I thought this other field was, it's so hard to make it. So I'm going to go do something else. And in the end, you really found something that you were able to excel at. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. That is a funny story. Yeah. But in those days, though, things were a little bit different. It's not as hard as it is now. What was interesting was that I ended up at UCSF in part because there was somebody else that was doing a sabbatical at Imperial College, Imperial College in the lab next to where I worked. And so this person said, well, you should apply to UCSF, you know, to the biochemistry and biophysics department. I said, okay, you know, I said, that would be perfect because my mother was living in L.A. at the time. And I think San Francisco is a good place because it's far enough at home. And close enough that I can go see her at least once a month. And so, um, so that's, that's how I end up at UCSF for my PhD. Right. And so that was very well planned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was very well planned. <laughs> um, and, and so we wanted to talk about your time at UCSF. So you worked on your master's in biochemistry, so you joined a lab of uh, Cho Hao Li, who was a biochemist. What was it like for you to be a, a PhD student at that time? I think you've made comments elsewhere that, you know, uh, being a woman in science at that time was, was a unique thing, a very much more unique than it is today. Um, and, and how did that time state, uh, kind of help your development as a scientist? Actually, you know, what was really interesting was actually before that, um, I did my master's degree at Imperial College. And the first day of orientation, there were like, you know, all these undergraduate and, you know, graduate students all gathered together. And there were like maybe two or 3,000 people. I looked around in that big room. I did not see a single woman. Imperial College of Science and Technology is very much like MIT. So it's focused mostly on engineering. So obviously there were not a lot of women in engineering at that time in particular. And so really this huge hall with a lot of people, there 
was not a single woman in sight. And so that was my first experience of being in an environment which are mostly men. Um, but in my graduate in my graduate school, actually, it was a little bit different because that year they only accepted two people. It was mm-hmm. myself and another woman. Yeah, and um, I end up in in Charles Lee's lab, and because I just was interested in the kind of work that they were doing at the time, and so developing you know cell based model to study some of the mechanism of action of many of these you know hormones that are generated in the pituitary. I had a, a, a very, very good experience, and particularly that for, for at least for that time, it, it, was a, it, it was sort of like a lab that, that we run now, that our lab. It was a pretty large lab where there are actually many different divisions, and so there were people that are extracting um, you know, pituitaries from, uh, get pituitary extract hormones from camels, from dogs from all kinds of species, just fascinating. And um, so there were a couple of people that worked there that basically all they did was to extract these hormones and then purification by chemical purification and then testing of activity in cell-based model and also in animal model. That sort of kind of influenced in a major way actually what I'm doing now and in a subconscious way, you know, and I, I actually like the environment a lot. It's very interactive. So it taught you to think like a biochemist and to really give give you scientific right. instincts. Working in a big lab, yeah, that's right. And in an environment where there are a fair number of people in the lab and working collaborative. Next, we want to just ask you about your brief stint in the Netherlands, and then and then after that, you went on to do a postdoc working with Michael Shalansky and Lloyd Green at Children's Hospital at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Yeah, during your postdoc, you published a paper characterizing how nerve growth factor stimulation affects the antigenic properties of a cell line called uh, PC12 cells, which are an adrenal crofamin cell line. And essentially, you showed that addition of NGF makes the cell line have cell surface antigens that more closely resemble those of neurons and give them neuronal properties. We don't want to actually spend too much time on this because you have so much uh, <laughs> research of your own as an independent scientist to talk about, but just briefly, you know, why were you interested in this question and what was the motivation behind the work and sort of how did it carry you forward into, into where you are now? Right. So, so I, I went back to Europe because I sort of missed living in Europe and since I did my music in, in, in London. And so after my post, I thought, okay, you know, it'd be great to do a postdoc, you know, in Europe again. And Netherlands is one of the few places that you can get by with English. Also, it's a continuation of what I did, so it's an endocrinology laboratory. But very quickly, I realized that um, it's very difficult to get a job back in the U.S. if you spend, you know, extended period of time as a postdoc. Um, and so that's when I decided that I should really find something um, back in the U.S. And I met Mike actually, um, and by accident, because this woman that I mentioned that we were both graduate students together at UCSF, and she was doing postdoc at the Institute Pasteur, and Mike Schlansky was actually on sabbatical at the Institute Pasteur. So, um, so I go down to Paris, Paris to visit my friend. And so one of the times that, you know, that uh, we got together and Mike was also there. And um, so at the same time, I voiced to him that I really wanted to go back to the U.S. And so he said, well, I'm going to Harvard and, you know, there are plenty of, uh, plenty of spots to fill. And so you, if you like, you know, just come to Boston. And that's how I ended up 
to Boston doing South with him. And actually, my first part of my postdoc was working with um, some of these um, uh, mouse models that are developed at Jackson, so they ob- observe these the, you know, natural mutation. And I was working on the staggerer and the weaver and the staggerer mutation at the time. But then, then, you know, then it was really, really cool because at the same time, Lloyd was developing the PC-12 cells. I mean, it really, I was there at ground zero and watched he derive the cell line from pheochromocytoma. And that turned into this wonderful cell line that people used, and um, particularly in those days where um, there weren't really very many techniques to generate primary neurons. So that was the surrogate of a neuron and that you can, you know, you can generate in a dish and you can study some of the properties. And so, yeah, so I enjoy myself very much. So this was at the forefront of being able to get as close as you can uh, at that time to being able to have an in vitro system for studying neuronal properties. That's right. My first grant actually was on the PC12 cells, studying the smile protein that I worked with Floyd and, and, and Michael. And, um, but then, you know, I quickly sort of move on to something else. So I actually done a lot of different things in my life. The early part of my life, I worked on neurofilaments, and I also developed a cell line, which actually was the precursor of iPS cells. So I put this teratocarcinoma cell line, that human teratocarcinoma. As you know, the teratocarcinoma can differentiate into many different cell types. These cells, when you treat them with retinoic acid, they actually differentiate into, terminally differentiate into neurons. And they have a lot of properties of, uh, of neurons. And in, in the 90s, late 90s, we actually had a company um, that called latent biosciences that um, sell these cells as tools, much like IPS cells, for people to study, um, you know, human neuron in a dish. And uh, we showed that these neurons actually you can transplant them into mouse brain, and then they survive in the mouse, in the new mouse brain. And so it was suddenly exciting at the time um, but then um, I got very, I got sidetracked, you know, doing something else, something I did, it was great. And, um, yeah. and then, and I guess in the 80s, um, John and I actually came together in yeah. a sense that scientifically. And so you ask, one of your question is that, well, how did John and I start collaborating? And yeah. so, so I was working on PC-12 cells. I was here in the University of Pennsylvania. And I wanted someone to do some EM. And so John said, I can do EM. I'll do EM for you. So, so we published a paper together in 1982. And then we... This was after you had met in right. Boston That's right. previously. That's right. That's right. After me, we met in Boston. And at the time that I really didn't know what I wanted to do, even with the postdoc, I thought, well, maybe I'll go work in a company. And so that's how we actually came to Philadelphia because I, I took a job at Smith Klein in French, which is now Gatchel um, Smith Klein. And um, so John actually was finishing up his training um, in Boston at the MTA, so it was easy for him to, you know, to, actually he was a resident, I'm sorry, he was a resident at the MTA, so he came here to continue his residency, and I worked at Smith Klein uh, for a year. And I really, at that time, it wasn't a good environment for me, so... I decided to come back to you. Okay, so we wanted to go back and ask a little bit about that time. So I guess 
you were in Boston. Uh, you met your now husband, John Trojanowski. Uh, you guys have had a long collaboration. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to ask about those collaborations. How do you guys complement each other in this, uh, in, in your interaction? That's actually going back to what I decided to do in the early 80s and so in, in the 80s. And you noticed that I, you know, I started a faculty position here. And I also, at the same time, did the MBA because I really wasn't certain that I could really, you know, survive as a scientist and, you know, and support myself with grants. So I said, okay, you know, and it's free for me to get a, an MBA because, you know, Penn really has great benefits for faculty. So, uh, so, so I did that. And then, you know, about that time, we were sort of talking about, you know, um, um, how we can work together and, and would complement each other. So he's a neuropathologist and a neuroanatomist. And I'm trained as a chemist. And so, and I learned a bit of neuroscience and as a postdoc. And so I thought, okay, let's systematically isolate and identify the pathology that are found in major neurodegenerative diseases. So time, nobody knew what tangles are comprised of, nobody knew what Lewy body comprised of, and nobody knew actually even those inclusion in ALS, um, uh, FTD are comprised of. So we started with Tao. So, you know, he has um, autopsy brain from patients, and, um, and so I took the brain and I started fractionating them to identify, to purify PHF filaments from our brain, and then eventually generates a sequence. So that's that's in 1991. So there's a molecular signature. There's a phase to neurofibrillary tangle. It's a top protein, right? And then at that point, I said, okay, so you have done one, identified a major disease protein, uh, or the, one of the two disease proteins in Alzheimer's brain, and so that was just to focus on that um, 1991 paper for a second. That was really that was huge, huge right? Because we yeah. <laughs> we um, knew that there were these uh, paired helical fibrils and that there were these uh, tangles and plaques, but we didn't know at a molecular level what was the common ideology of disease in all these brains. Right. And so, what was you know? Can you describe a little bit about the process of making that discovery? You know, what was the reaction to the paper at the time? I know there was a debate and as to uh, between the Taoists and the Baptists. Is, uh, <laughs> I've read. They're both important, right? The disease is really characterized by both of them, and it was it was a thrill for me. I mean, I think that um, you know it was a lot of hard work, but um, I'm glad that you know and. John and I can work together, and our skill set really turn out to complement each other. And um, one of the things I learned from, from that experience is that it is really hard work to really um, isolate disease protein from brains because um, an Alzheimer's brain is not an Alzheimer's brain. It's not an Alzheimer's brain. So they're very variable. So you need to be able to identify brains that are enriched in the pathology and then use that as a starting point and to purify and um, uh, Alzheimer's PHF. But thinking back now, and you fast forward to 22, 23 years now, and looking back at what we've done, and what we realize is that that wasn't easy. 
because why do I say that? Because Alzheimer's pathology is the most abundant. Plaques and tangle are the most abundant among any neurodegenerative diseases. And so, and and then the NICs, the you know other other than plaques and tangle, I think Lewy bodies is relatively abundant. And so that was the next thing that, that, that we took upon ourselves. So at the same time, so once we ID the protein, then you need to really, if you want to come up with a cure, you need to do something about that protein. So, so simultaneously to doing, to, you know, trying to identify the next disease protein, we try to develop models, animal models and cell-based models, and so that they would form these new tangles in cells, uh, in animal brain, but that took much longer than we anticipated because it's just that the technology just wasn't even there at the time. And, you know, if you remember, transgenesis actually um, became sort of more commonly used well into the 80s. So it was this first, the technology was discovered in, I think, early 80s, 1980, I think that people knew how to make a transgenic mouse by, you know, genetic engineering the you know the, the, the mice so that you can make a, a mouse overexpressing certain proteins or you know and so those those were the early days so um, but but it, it really the, the plan would be to ID the protein come up with model systems and the model system of the human disease allow you to study disease mechanism and also to use this model to come up with therapy because they become platforms now to identify small molecule drugs or even you know, interrogate, you know, pathways because you can, if you knock down certain gene and you can, you know, the aggregate disappear, then actually identify new genes and new targets for therapy, right? So it's really important to be able to model the disease in an animal and also in cells in the dish. And so so that these are the, the kind of type of approach that we use is that we ID the protein then we come up with these models. Then we study the right. models. I mean, at the time you started all of this, it seems like, I mean, you kind of already had this plan, this like, you know, you would go from the, the biochemistry to the animal models, but it seems so far ahead. And I've heard, I mean, at the time it was like, people were like, why are you starting this? This is, this is going to be so hard. Are you, are you surprised but also excited to see that it came out this way? Or <laughs> Well, I think that, you know, um, and if you want to be successful in anything and, uh, you need to work hard. I mean, basically, everybody is smart, right? So your colleagues are very smart. And so if you are smart, you work hard, and you focus and think about what you do. And I think that, you know, new ideas would emerge. And I believe that. Uh, and so, yeah, so it, it, yeah, so it, it was hard, but then it was all worth it. And going back to that 91 paper, I remember looking at the EM images in the paper and just seeing what the actual paired helical fibrils look like. Can you describe, I mean, I liked how you kind of brought this uh, paper in context of neurodegenerative disease in general. What, uh, and I know we're on the air and people aren't able to see visuals, but what are the similarities and differences between these plaques, these protein aggregates in Alzheimer's and, you know, versus Lewy bodies and other neurodegenerative diseases? And w- what is known structurally? Yeah, they, they share a common property. They're, they're amyloids. So they have very defined characteristics. So pair filament is a little bit different because 
is twisted, and also it has sort of a fussy coat on the outside. And the diameter of, of the filaments, the amyloid fibers, are very similar to Lewy body filaments, and they have the same property in the sense that they bind certain chemical dyes. You know, like for example, um, you know, silver stain or bind, you know, and chemicals that specific affinity for amyloid fibers. And the amyloid too, even though they're extracellular, so that these amyloids are different in the sense that you can broadly define them into category, three different categories. They're either outside of the cell, like prion, you know, they accumulate as extracellular accumulations, and amyloid also accumulate extracellular. But tau and synuclein are intracellular uh, aggregates, mostly in neurons, but also in glial cells as well, and particularly tau. And then we actually, there was one other protein that, that we discovered that you didn't have here, and this was in 2006. So, so we did we did Louis body, and we were successful. And except that, you know, we were actually, at, by that point, we were beaten by the geneticists. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the geneticists, the geneticists identified a huge category of familial Parkinson's disease. And by doing, you know, analysis on the family, they identified a mutation in alpha-synuclein. It turned out to be very rare, but this family turned out to have this particular mutation on alpha-synuclein. And so we were getting very, very close to uh, using a different approach, make, purifying the inclusion, making antibody to it, and then seeing that as a tool to ID the protein. So at that point, I, I was humbled in the sense that the geneticists really can can do this much faster than I can do, finding brains and and so so but but that was great and so we did that and. Um, but that was in the same year that uh, there that the geneticists came forth with their findings. So three months, two or three months before we did, or a couple of months before we did. Yeah, and then and then after that, we actually identified another disease protein, and which is not in your questions. I don't know whether you are aware of that. No. Yeah, yeah, just we wanted to cover, <laughs> chose some of the highlights. There were a lot to choose from. It's really quite important. It is really amazing, and it opened up, you know, um, and uh, the feel of RNA protein in genetic diseases. And Dr. Gittler is particularly, um, uh, you know, active in this area. I mean, he identified many other RNA binding proteins in other genetic diseases, and, um, and and that really was the one that nobody really had any idea uh, that it would be an RNA binding protein. And so we're very, very excited about TDP43 as well. And it's, it lags behind the other two, obviously, in terms of biology, understanding of the disease and the role in disease and so on. It's much more complicated, but fascinating. So the transmission, actually, is, it's great. And so, you know, the transmission really um, is something that we thought of about five or six years ago and that you know and the whole idea of this transmission just came uh, uh, we, we decided to do this transmission because of the fact that tau and synuclein they're very soluble proteins and you can overexpress them in cells until you they're you know until you blew in the face I had so many students post try to do that by overexpression they just don't work period and so then we sort of out of, out of wits, we didn't know what to do. So I thought, okay, so let's take a little bit of the fibroids that we generate from the recombinant protein and just throw them in 
to see if they do anything. And that really was the aha moment that we were able to see pathology. And that, that really is the idea of the fact that all of these neurodegenerative diseases behave in a prion, prion-like fashion. They're not prions because they're not infectious, but they are able, the misfolded form can corrupt the endogenous protein, they adopt the back conformation, and therefore, you know, start building up in, inside cells, and then also they can be released from cells and can, can be picked up by the neighboring cell, and therefore they can be transmitted. And so that really was just fascinating. And um, so that's basically the topic of my talk is this whole concept. Yeah. So let me just briefly reintroduce that so that listeners can have some context. So you're right now in this most recent part, you're actually talking about the transsynaptic spread of these uh, protein aggregates that you guys just published not too long ago in 2012 and 13. So like you said, it's an amazing thing, uh, hard, to, hard to show, but you guys were able to show it. Why do you think these protein aggregates might be crossing the synapses? So one thought we had was that... Um, uh, many of these proteins are associated with microtubules and other proteins that are important for axon transport. Uh, do you think it's something about the natural function of those proteins that, or what would be the natural function of those proteins that's allowing them to cross so easily, the synapses? Um, we don't know. We don't know whether or not it's transsynaptic. And I would be conservative and say that it's transneuronal um, because we don't have direct evidence that it's um, going through a synapse. We think that, you know, that they can be released um, and from processes and maybe even from, from the cell body. So a small amount of the misfolded protein can be released. And, and then that can be picked up by, um, you know, by the adjacent neuron. And um, there were one argument that suggests that it could be transnaptic because it seems that the transfer, the spread, and uh, is through the neuroanatomical network. So that is one piece of evidence to suggest that it could be transsynaptic. But we do not have direct evidence to support it. But be as it may, that, you know, we think that the pathology are released um, and then, then can be picked up and then can be then propagated once it get inside um, the cell. And what do both of these papers, the 2012 and 13 one, in concert just say about uh, cell type and brain region specificity and the cellular environment and neurodegenerative disease? So I think in the discussion of the 2013 paper, you say that the striatum was not affected by injecting the tau pre the fibrils. And, and we know that Parkinson's affects substantial nigra neurons, but the VTA neurons are fine. So uh, where where's your thinking about uh, why certain cells seem to be so affected and and so uh, vulnerable and others not? Right now for for, for um, synuclein and dopaminergic neurons in the substantial nigra pass compactor and project directly to the dorsal striatum, whereas um, the VTA, even though it's right next to it, they don't project to the same place. And so this is actually a good example of the fact that, you know, that the, 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 um, most likely the, um, um, the processes of the dopaminergic cells in the past compactor picked up a little bit of the seeds and then retrogradely transported. And as it transported and it started recruiting the endogenous protein, 
and then eventually then you get a root body in the cell body. And so that's really a demonstration of, 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 of specific spreading through the anatomical connectome. So that's for cell nucleum. And um, for tau, for, for, for cell nucleum, tau in terms of their specificity, we still don't understand that quite yet. We demonstrate the phenomenon. So we inject um, tau into the hippocampus. They spread much more widely and to its connected region than synuclein. So when you inject synuclein, this is not published for the synuclein, but we inject synuclein into the hippocampus. It doesn't really go to too many places, and which is very interesting. So the basis for this difference is we don't know at this point in time. And right now we're just making the observation that they don't always follow the connection. Okay, and there's some specificity, cell type specificity that we don't know about, not quite yet at this right. point. So there's some kind of circuit plus right. specific pathology yes. synergy that happens. It's, yes, it's right. pretty That's amazing. Right. Yeah. Yes, pretty amazing. Yes. So then to follow that line of reasoning, do you think that if you injected the alpha synuclein fibrils into the nucleus accumbens, which is where the VTA projects to, that you'd selectively affect the VTA? cells, and so that there's nothing specific about this population of cells. It's just that they're picking it up from... Yes. We actually have those experiments in progress. Oh, wow. Very cool. (laughs) Then finally, thinking about this cellular environment and its contribution to disease, we'll now uh, go back in time a little bit to this 2000 paper you published, how uh, tyrosine residues of alpha synuclein um, get nitrated and then form this cross-linking due to oxidative stress. So we know that connectivity plays a role in ex- making the conditions ripe for neuropathology. What about the uh, state of the cell in general and and cellular stress? Right, right. So I think that you know the, the 2012 paper really speak to that in the sense that you know, we saw spreading of pathology to many different brain regions when we injected into dose of And yet, the only population of cells that died within the time frame that we looked at the animal, which is six months, were the dopaminergic cells in the Hodgkin factor. And we think that they are basically selectively vulnerable because by making dopamine, they're really under some sort of oxidative stress already and, and, and the basal level. And so when you give them a little bit more stress, then they actually succumb to death. And the nitration part actually is interesting because we have not really seen much nitration in animals, but nitration could also be a consequence, not a cause, but a consequence of having Lewy body sitting around in the brain for a long period of time. And so we haven't been able to sort that out yet. And it, nitration is not in every single Lewy body. So if it was in every single Lewy body, then you can say, okay, so there's something about this oxidative stress that is created in the neuron and as they form Lewy bodies, but that is not the case. And only some Lewy bodies have nitration and signature and others don't. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, so this is really great. Um, so we just wanted to end a little bit with uh, you giving us a preview of your talk, which you mentioned you're probably going to talk um, more about the recent work that we've, we've mentioned. Is there anything you wanted to add? Uh, no, not not really. I mean, I think that I'm looking forward to to uh, meeting you in person, and seem like that you guys are really an energetic group, 
<laughs> and I think yeah. that by by doing what you do and you you know meet a lot of other scientists and and then you would have some more insight in terms of what you want to do and they think <laughs> that you guys are doing. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. Before we uh, end, we. Um, <laughs> have a series of three quick rapid-fire questions uh, where we just ask you a quick question and you can say whatever comes to the top of your mind and um, they're meant to be sort of uh, quick and fun. Yeah. Start off by asking, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Virginia, as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself? Man, as I said, you know, this all this rambling that I've made is that, you know, I wish I can decide what I want to do and I didn't. So, so I'm I'm an outlier. So, um, so I think that, you know, today I think that if you know what you want to do, you are at a huge advantage over somebody like me. I don't know whether I would make it, to be very honest, because I really didn't know what I wanted to do until very late in my career. Um, so, and if you know what you want to do, go for it. And um, so it, particularly if you know that this is what you want to do and what would complement your training as a graduate student for a faculty position so you can think about your postdoc because every experience you have should be additive in terms of making you who you are as a scientist. And so this is what I give my advice to my graduate students. I, I wish I could do that when I was. <laughs> That's great advice. Yeah. All right. Uh, the second one harkens back to your, well, former self. Uh, do you have a favorite piece in the piano repertoire, either that you like to listen to or play? Not really. I like to play Chopin a lot. I like to play Beethoven a lot. Okay. Great. And then I'd like to know if you have a most exciting uh, scientific moment or discovery process that you um, that comes to mind? I would say that, you know, believe it or not, TDP 43 was really a thrill. Because it's totally unexpected. And, um, and because this is really, I would say that there are some hints of what Tau is going to be because there are people have done, you know, make antibody. And so there's some hint. And even this nuclear, the genetics, uh, you know, was already hinting. Um, but TDP for it was a total surprise. And so that was, I think, one of the biggest thrills. Okay, well, great. Thank you so much. This concludes the interview. I really appreciate We both really yeah, appreciate you taking time. the time to speak yeah. with us. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right, good talking to you. Bye-bye. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us in two weeks when our speaker will be Rui Costa, an investigator at the Champa Limol Center for the Unknown in Portugal. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Luis Giam, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Adi Yi, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm David Lipton. And I'm Ada Yee.